Greetings, Alpha Seekers. Um, Welcome to the Alpha's Next Podcast. I hope you uh, didn't miss... Well, I hope you did miss me yesterday, because I... One thing I've learned is that your federal government uh, does work hard. It doesn't work that smart, but it sure does work hard. At least in this case, uh, as an officer of the federal government, at least until December 9th, I worked yesterday from 7.30 in the morning till 9 at night. And, uh, you know, I was kind of surprised by by the uh, work ethic of the federal government. So we're trying to get out there and count y'all in the U.S. Census. And so if you would go ahead and fill out your form and mail it back or uh, go online and, and do it, that would make the job a little easier. Now, I may be working myself out of a job by encouraging you to do that, but, you know, there are good reasons to do it. Um, we will get more uh, representation in the House if we all get ourselves counted, and we will also get more money, so more power and more money, and also private businesses do use census data to decide site selection for stores and that sort of thing. That's not probably as much of a big deal now in the COVID era as it used to be but it's true and then they cite fire department sites you know first responders so it's it's everything's a lot better if everybody gets counted and in chicago proper at least i think the uh, completion rate's under 60 percent which is not good but we are working hard to try to get y'all counted so your cooperation would be appreciated by uncle sam so this is our weekend edition. I'm not going to really talk about what happened Friday because that's old news. Uh, so uh, let me start out. I usually do, I read this magazine. It's a week, news weekly called The Week, which is good. It's at theweek.com, I think it is, but Google it. I, I would recommend it. My father-in-law recommended it to me, and it's good sort of Reader's Digest. And what's nice about it, is it gives, you know, both sides of the story. It usually has three, it'll cover an issue and, and quote three columnists or opinion writers about it in addition to the straight story, fact-based. So it gives you perspectives all around, which certainly these days that's hard to find on cable news, for example. So I'll start out with, they've got it organized very well into departments. So uh, I will start with their business section, which I just had. We don't prepare that well for these things. I just had that. Well, yeah, here's one. Yeah, let's start with making money because that's what we're all trying to do here, right? That's that's what alpha seekers seek. So, uh, one of the interesting things in this is that the professionals, and I've seen this on CNBC, which I try to watch so you don't have to, but I've been busy, you know. Uh, Robinhood is this retail trading site, and... You know, there's good news and bad news, but 
they talk about there's a little site called robintrack.net, which is two years old. Uh, I didn't know Robinhood was that old. But, you know, day trading has picked up now that everybody's just sitting home. And they're like, how am I going to make a buck? And they figure the market was down in March, so I'll just get long some stuff. And there's been this barstool Bernie guy who, you know, he, he puts out there, you know, stocks always go up. And there have been some unfortunate consequences. Like, you can trade options on this thing. And some poor kid locally uh, actually thought he was in a big hole and unfortunately uh, committed suicide over it. So, you know, this is not all good. Let's put it that way. And uh, But nonetheless, I have a... A friend who has been living off of it because he's been investing. He's made some great picks. And so it turns out, you know, when I watch CNBC, the pros are kind of distraught because, you know, you're basically throwing out a kite with a with a great he- tailwind. So it's like, look how easy it is to fly a kite. And when that when that tailwind dies, you know, it's not going to be so easy, but these these people don't know it. So they're going to their financial advisors, hey, how come you're only making me 8%? I made 30 40%. And the, the, the answer is that, you know, and it, everybody looks like a genius in a bull market if you're long, you know, but it's not always a bull market. Nonetheless, uh, the, the pros are starting to look at the... Uh, the amateurs using sites like Robin Track, and uh, you know it's it's questionable how much influence these folks have, but you know stocks stocks trade on the current bid ask. So if there's if there's day traders bidding on it, like you know we've seen some stocks the pros wouldn't touch, like Hertz, go through the roof, and Kodak had the same experience. You know Kodak ran up on this government contract. But then all the day traders got a hold of it, and it ran up like that from it started at two bucks, because that's been a dead money for years, you know. Kodak moment, uh, film died, and so did Kodak, and they've been floundering around. But it, so it went up to like eight bucks after the contract was announced, which is legit. I mean, they're going to be able to make generics hopefully here in the U.S. I think that's a good idea. And but then it went up to thirty. It's like look, the margins on generics are terrible. That's why they're all done in India and China. So there's some crazy stuff happening, but, you know, the prints are still the prints. Uh, The price is still the price. So, you know, that's an interesting phenomenon. And I think if you're an alpha seeker, you know, you can can either go long on some of the stuff or use options and take a very short-term profit and, you know, take your money off the table if it goes up like that. Because some of them, like, the Hertz thing went up big and then it just crashed. Now, if you're savvy and you are sophisticated, I mean, you can make money on the updraft and then you can make money on the downdraft too. You can either buy the stock long and play the momentum or you can trade options. You know, you can take a buy a call uh, or sell a put and make money on the, on the way up and then take those trades off and play it the other way. Or you can also sell short. I'm not a big advocate of short selling. But, you know, if your timing is right, you can sell short. I'd rather use options myself because you limit your risk. Because, you know, if you go short on a stock, the the downside is unlimited. 
you know, the stock goes to a million, you, <laughs> you know, you're losing all the way up. So it's hard to time that stuff, so I'd rather use options. But, uh, you know, if, you, if you're so inclined, you can, you can play these guys. Uh, let's see, what else? The interesting thing, one of the interesting things to me is the price of gold, which uh, Joe Wallace in the Wall Street Journal writes, uh, futures contracts hit almost 2,000 an ounce, which is an... The, the previous intraday record was September 2011, so that's a nine-year record that got broken. Prices up 27% for the year, uh, and there's several factors that have... It's, it's a safe haven trade, and it's, a, uh, it's an inflation trade. I don't think gold is a safe haven, nor do I think that inflation is going to happen. I just don't see it. So... Uh, Prices could fall because when it gets this expensive and you've got lockdowns in China and India, China and India are like, particularly India, gold demand over there for jewelry and such is huge. And that's the fundamental that drives gold. I mean, gold is nothing more than an ornamental uh, intrinsic value. It's got some industrial applications, but primarily it's the jewelry business that drives it. And as it gets pricier, you know, there's elasticity of demand there. You know, a savvy jewelry customer is going to wait until the prices come back down to earth. So I don't see it. It's a momentum trade. You can't argue with the, with the market. But I see that you could make some money, uh, you know, buying some puts on GLD or even the gold mining stocks. That's where I would play it if I was going to play it. I, I can't see this thing running up forever. But you never know. It's an emotionally driven trade. You know, it's guys who think their money's going to be no good or they think inflation's coming. And I'm not one of them. Okay, now here's something that's happening. Blank check companies. These are called special purpose acquisition companies, SPACs. Uh, they raise money to buy a startup to go public. And I've seen uh, this guy, Ackman, Bill Ackman, make a very good case for it. He launched a SPAC and uh, went up like seven percent the day it it got it went public. So, um, and he made a real good case for it. So, Nikola is one that's done this. Uh, DraftKings and Virgin Galactic. Of those three, I think both of them are sucker plays, except for uh, DraftKings. I shouldn't say. The two out of the three, in my mind, are not good investments. DraftKings, though, makes some sense because uh, it's gambling. So SPAC investors don't get a say in where their money is aimed. So you're basically trusting the backer. Um, Ackman's, you know, a lot of people don't like him, but he's got a pretty good track record, especially lately. He called this COVID thing early, and he raised $4 billion for Pershing Square Tantine Holdings. I don't know what Tantine means. And it popped. You know, it popped 7% day one. Now, there's history here. They quote a guy named Alexander Osipovich in the journal. In the 80s, they were popular, and they were associated with penny stock frauds, which built investors of $2 billion. Now, since then... The regulatory and legal uh, process has 
cleaned up the sector. It's an expensive way to go public, according to Matt Levine and Bloomberg. Uh, there's fees they pay to investment banks, uh, often bigger than a traditional IPO. And uh, there's a 20% rake from the founder and the operator. So, you know, some people wonder if it'll end in tears, according to Bloomberg. Uh, a lot of blind faith. And median 12% decline after they launch. But the spaces started maturing. According to Ackman, is kind of a bellwether of that. So it has, it's yet to be seen whether or not they're good. I might be willing to put some money on Ackman, though, because, you know, he's a pro. He's had some bad. He liked the short stuff. Um, he was a big critic of Herbalife, and he was at war with them. And there was another guy, I forget, Carl, uh, can't remember his last name. Uh, big famous investor Carl something is on the other side of that trade. And it looks like Ackman was wrong on that. I mean, he was put together these epic, you know, 500-slide presentations that showed that Herbalife was just a scam and a multi-level marketing thing. And, I mean, you know, any of these, uh, any of these companies like that can be accused of that. But evidently they're really selling some product. Uh, it's... It, they have the pyramid scheme thing, you know, multi-level marketing stuff where mostly, you know, you recruit more distributors and they buy the inventory and get stuck with it. I had a guy stick me with that one time. He was a client when I worked for uh, my last full-time employer and he stuck me with 80 bucks worth of this nonsense, but which was basically Metamucil. So a lot of it is a scam, but... Uh, yeah, Herbalife survived it. So, nah, but Ackman is well-known, and he's had some wins. So I would probably be willing to go for that. Um, but your mileage may vary. and I'm not recommending them. I just thought it was interesting. Um, housing market. Apparently, uh, you know, the suburban... There's a, it's, it's sort of a split market, two alternative realities. Uh, the fleers from urban areas to the suburbs, that market is, is going gangbusters. For renters, the outlook is grim. A federal eviction moratorium expired last week, so a lot of people have 30 days to pay the rent, which may account for the influx of demand for census jobs. Uh, the national moratorium only covered tenants in buildings with federally backed mortgages. States have their own eviction limits, but some have let them expire, like Texas. I think Illinois and Chicago are probably uh, more uh, liberal on this. So, you know, renters tend to have much lower incomes than buyers. Buyers tend to buyers' median is ninety three grand. Renters are thirty-five grand, and they've been hit the hardest by this because a lot of them don't have work-from-home jobs. But as a potential uh, multi-housing investor, I, I was turned away by the 
inability to get paid, you know, because I'm going to own my mortgage and I'm going to own my contractors. And if I can't collect from my tenants, that sounds like a disaster. Um, so that's what's going on in that field. And that could get worse before it gets better. And I know the Fed, the Congress is having trouble agreeing on another stimulus. Not that 1200 bucks is going to help people that much. So, you know, that's what it is. And here there's an article from Bruce Bartlett from the New Republic. Uh, there's a, let's see, there's a gold bug named Judy Shelton who doesn't like fiat currency, which means not backed by anything, and believes we should go back to a gold standard and worries about hyperinflation. And, and I don't agree with that philosophy. You know, that changes the, the issue. Uh, Fried, Milton Friedman, who was revered by many uh, conservatives, said that the gold standard was basically a crackpot idea. <laughs> you know, basically it's a zero-sum game, and it, it fixes the money supply to a fairly arbitrary uh, fixed supply of gold. You know, the only way you can expand the money supply in that sort of a scenario is by mining more gold, and that doesn't really have anything to do with, like, the population. You know, I think the better way to do that is to, and this is what Keynes wanted to do, was to have some kind of a global uh, currency that was issued by the World Bank and that would basically expand money supply as population increased. So you'd have more money to correspond to the size of the global, uh, global uh, product, you know. GD, global GDP, which is uh, gross domestic product on a global basis. The United States actually vetoed that idea because understanding that he who has the gold makes the rules. They basically set the, uh, the U.S. dollar up as a gold derivative so that we basically controlled uh, world economics, which I get. But, you know, then we went off the gold standard, I think, in 73 because we just were, we weren't good for it anymore. We didn't have enough gold uh, to to convert dollars into gold. So we've been on a fiat currency standard for you know the last forty five fifty years. I think people like uh, AOC, Alexandria Ocasio Cortez, are and other politicians of that ilk, if you will. Uh, have realized that you can, under modern monetary theory, you can basically do anything you want. You know, you can borrow as much as you want as long as you get some GDP growth that's in excess of interest rates, which you can control. You know, the Fed basically controls the, the yield curve. So folks like that are just starting to realize the possibilities that, it, that are inherent in a world that, has free-floating fiat currency where the only valuation of currencies is against each other in the in the currency markets. So, um, yeah, I, I don't think going back to the gold standard is the answer, and I don't think politically you're ever going to have the United States, not anytime soon, rely on the United Nations or what, whatever to be the... Uh, 
controller of the money supply. I think the United States will try to remain the reserve currency for as long as possible. And I think the way that breaks down, you know, I talk to people about modern monetary theory, and they say, well, that can't work. That's just not, that doesn't sound right. It, it defies common sense. And I think the way it breaks down is when your GDP is no longer real, really there anymore. You know, if you can pay people funny money for doing nothing, essentially, if you don't generate real value, and of course that's harder to measure now because GDP now includes a lot of services and a lot of, you know, e-commerce types of things. It's not necessarily related to what it used to be, physical growth, you know, the, the amount of steel you manufacture, the, the amount of energy uh, that you consume or produce. The things we used to think were valuable now, we, some people think, are, are the opposite because, you know, automobiles generally pollution unless they're electric. So the, the measures of value are different today than they, they were in the industrial era. We're kind of in a post-industrial society. So value becomes tougher to measure. But if people see that the U.S. economy really isn't producing value anymore, I think that the underlying currency, the underlying value of the currency may be perceived to be weak. And currency is all about perception of value. If I believe the dollar is a sound currency, it is. If I, if I cease to believe that that physical piece of paper or that digital entry in my bank account is real value and other people accept it. So it's kind of a confidence game when you get down to it. You know, every every issue of currency is kind of a counterfeiter in a, in a fiat currency world. But as long as people believe it's worth what, it, what, what we say it is, then, then, then it's worth it. So we have to inspire confidence in our currency, no matter how that's done. And when we cease to inspire confidence, that's when we'll have trouble. And I do think that the left doesn't realize how much military power um, is related to the perception of the value of a currency. I mean, to some extent, the dollar is worth what it is because we say so. And what we say is respected to a certain extent because of our military power. You know, people don't agree with us. We do have the option of deploying military forces. And our military is by far the most proficient in the world today. No question about it. So, uh, you know, to the extent that we start to pull back from that and not, not budget uh, funds for military, that could diminish the perception of power that we have in the world too. And, of course, there's soft power. You know, I talked to a lot of people who really came to love America not based on anything other than our culture, you know, our music, our literature. Um, so uh, soft power is underrated, I think. You know, the British had a lot of soft power even in the 60s and so forth because of their, their cultural output, the Beatles. and You know, it has a lot of power. More so than I anticipated, and I get that from people who come to this country. They learn to love this country because of the music and such. So, um, Intel has had problems or perception of problems because they're going to outsource their fabs, their fabrication, chip fabrication. They've lost some business that Apple gave them. Uh, they're not 
pr launching product. They're they're behind uh, Taiwan Semi, and uh, you know that's global competition. So when Intel outsources to Taiwan Semiconductor, that's a bad sign, and it may mean, according to Ian King of Bloomberg, that they never catch up. So. You know, that's global competition. I don't have a problem with it. So that's it for the business section, as you hear me toss that. On the tech front, there's a big piece about telemedicine, and I think this is great. Um, you know, Medicare decided to pay for it, and uh, the issues that come up, the fellow named, I think it's a fellow named Ativ. Merotra writing in Stat News, which is a very good source of information. Uh, there's there are expenses. Uh, there are concerns about how much, for example, Medicaid will cover. Uh, but David Blumenthal, who's a physician writing in the Harvard Business Review, says the tech is fine. He's a primary care doc. Uh, but he thinks that telemedicine doesn't allow a physician to really do the job uh, with the full uh, array of his or her senses. You know, you can't pale pay people, which means touch them and check for uh, swelling and such. So there's a limit. I think that, you know, I think I agree with that, but I do think a lot of the office visits that are done now are just done, you know, basically because that's how the doctor gets paid. Like if you have a prescription... After a certain number of refills, the doc will ask you to come in. And like if I have GERD, that office visit doesn't do me any good. If you can do a telemedicine visit, save everybody the trouble of scheduling and, you know, particularly with COVID exposure, I don't see anything wrong with that at all. Accessibility is an issue, and I find that even working for the census, a lot of these folks don't have broadband. A lot of these folks don't have computers. They have to go to a library and they can only use the computer for 45 minutes at the library. So, you know, and then that's COVID risk. So I do think that uh, one thing that would be, and these are people who are trying to do training, the census makes them do, but they have to do it online on their own device, and they don't have it, you know? It's very frustrating for these folks trying to make a living here. So I do think that it would make sense to have some sort of a, you know, particularly if you're going to try to hire these folks to work for the government. You know, you could see a program where you have online voting and you have uh, work that people can do for the feds or whoever, and they get their own uh, laptop or what have you or a, a sophisticated cell phone if you make everything run on the app. And, uh, you know, you, you give them access to broadband and the feds pick up the tab. I don't have a problem with that. You know, because it gets people into the digital arena, and then they can work and make money, so you don't have to give them uh, public assistance. It gives them access to health care. Telehealth care is a lot easier to deliver than physical health care, you know, and it, it kind of obviates some of the issues with giving people personal health care. Uh, the... The other thing, though, is a lot of these older folks, and I'm older, and I'm not, I'm not that tech savvy. Ask anybody who works with me, but uh, a lot of the folks who've I've been trying to train here, I mean, they just 
really aren't able to use the technology. So um, I think you could use it for education. So I, I really do think that's a, there's a digital divide, and I think that's pretty easy to fix. And the return on that investment would be very, very good, potentially. Now, some people are going to hack the thing, you know. I mean, there's always going to be issues with that. But I think, you know, give people the tools and they'll do the job. And today, the tools are digital. So I'm, I'm for that. The other area that uh, the New York Times uh, commenter Shira Ovid says is mental health, and I know that personally. Um, I was getting some anger management therapy. You can do it on the phone just as easy. So um, there is some fear. Bloomberg says there's some fear that the the feds, the payers, the third-party payers will reverse the trend and stop paying for telehealth. I don't believe that. I And it's a great opportunity for direct patient care docs. That means that they don't take insurance. Because once we go uh, with Medicare for All, Universal Health, hopefully there'll still be a private market in this country, and telehealth is perfect for that. So um, let's see, what else is noteworthy here? That covers the tech front. And then the health and science front, uh, a couple of things that, you know, uh, Ventures Next, one of my other companies, is involved with uh, biotech healthcare. There's a uh, new uh, treatment for uh, Lyme disease. It's like a prophylaxis, which means preventive. Uh, it's called Lyme Prep. L-Y-M-E is Lyme disease, P-R-E-P. And uh, it's being developed by a project led by Mark Klempner from the University of Mass Medical School, supposedly 100% effective in phase one on mice. That'd be great. So what that tells us is that everything is in COVID and biotech. You know, there's some alpha opportunities. Now, I don't even know if they've developed a commercial partnership, but I am going to go looking for that. So that's the kind of thing that... Uh, on the ventures next side with our biotech fund, we're going to be trying to get into, you know, because it's a big disease, big problems. So anyway, uh, now on COVID, there is a potential breakthrough, a drug called SNG001. Uh, it's an inhaled drug. Um, and again, I don't know the company behind it or if it's public, but we'll be looking into that too. And you know, from a macro level, the whole market runs basically on, on, the, on the COVID trade. So that's a potential. And I'm sure we'll see a lot of potentials. So let's see. Uh, here's some, uh, there's an article in here about AOC being the Democrats' future, and I think she is. I think she is a great candidate for the, for the progressive side, for the Democrats. There's a few quotes in here I was going to talk about, but I'm not going to. Um, here's a political breakdown. 34% uh, of Americans identify as conservative, which is down from 40% as recently as February. And I think that's COVID. 26% identify as liberal. So there's still more conservative identifiers as li than liberal. And 36% identify as moderate. So if you add all those up... Uh, 56, 62, 92, 96. So I don't know what the other 4% are, but 
you know, that swing vote, that moderate vote is still what wins elections. 80% of Americans believe, this is an all-time high, by the way, 80% believe the country's heading in the wrong direction. That's a terrible indicator for Trump. A majority disapprove of Trump's handling of the virus, 68%. That's, this thing is, he's the biggest casualty of the virus. And education, 63% disapprove. Healthcare, 63% disapprove. And I think the healthcare is a function of the virus, and even the education, because we're arguing about whether to open schools because of the virus. And the economy, a bare majority, 51% disapprove of this handling of the economy. All those are driven by virus, in my opinion. This is like some kind of biblical plague against him as the pharaoh. I, I really believe if that virus didn't come along, we'd have a horse race here, but I believe because of the virus, we do not. Now, Here's another thing that's kind of business-related, but also virus-related. If you have AC, HVAC uh, that you control, you want to be using a filter with an efficiency rating of at least MERV 13. And I'm going to delegate this to the guy I have that helps me with my house because I want one of those. The other thing that I want is like an ultraviolet light like we used to have when I was a kid because that kills virus. So it kills bacteria, but also kills virus. So anyway, that's, uh, I read the week so you don't have to, and that's what I pulled out that I thought would be interesting from this week's episode. I've got some uh, back issues that I was going to do, but I've already spent 33 minutes of your day, or 34 if you hung in here. So... Live long, prosper, Uh, and please uh, share this. If you like this, share it with your buddies, your network, as we call it now, because we like to get the message out to as many people as possible. We try to give people good advice here and steer them in the right direction. So if you can help us expand the uh, and proselytize the message, then the world will be a better place. Now... At least a little better, hopefully. We do our best. So this is your host, Terry Ninja for Alpha's Next, signing off. Have a good weekend, and uh, probably be back at you on Monday. Bye-bye.